Welcome back, family. It's a special week, y'all. This week is Teacher Appreciation Week, and I personally want to thank all of the educators out there that put up with me over the years. You are appreciated dearly. And like any award show, you know you have all these names running through your head, and so I apologize in advance if there are any names of wonderful teachers that had just a great impact on my life, because I won't forget you, and never can. Mrs. Lebo, Mrs. Milady, Mrs. Ray, Mrs. Samuelson, Mrs. White, Mr. Gotchall, Mrs. Horsey. And if you're an NBA fan, you know of the era of the big three. And the big three is when three superstars come together from different teams to form a super team to create a championship. And for me, I too have a big three. Mr. Washington, Kochi, and Mrs. Diaz. I thank you, and I love you deeply. You are the examples that highlight what teaching is about. It wasn't really about the content that you were giving me, it was the care that you were instilling in me. It was the love that you showed me every single day, even when I wasn't at my best, because on those days you made me better. And to all the teachers out there, including my own father, keep doing what you do for kids. They deserve, want, and need you now more than ever. Your inspiration, creativity, and care is exactly what the future doctor, lawyer, and entrepreneur needs in their lives. Thank you for all that you do. And I have to, I have to thank this special teacher because this is a, a very special week. My mother, it is Mother's Day this week, y'all, and I don't know where I would be without you. I don't know what I would be or who I would have become, but because of you, I was able to see it, dream it, believe it, and then go do it. So happy Mother's Day, Mom. Love you. Love you all, and happy Teacher's Appreciation Week. And if this is your first time tuning in to Penciled In, welcome. You're going to be listening to a podcast that is driven by numbers, painted by story, and refusing to allow dialogue across difference to be erased by allowing our humanity to be more than penciled in. Let's go. I think my leadership story starts with uh, being a young black man that lived in two worlds. Uh, being a young black man that lived in two worlds. This out. What's up, family? This is your host, David Hardy Jr., and welcome back to Penciled In. It is May 6, 2021, and we're going to continue our conversation around education. Last week, we talked about educational practices and systems that are creating inequities. And this week, we're going to talk about all of the systems that create inequities within educational practices. And that all stems from educational politics that surround the worlds that we all live in and educate in. Talk about how that is impacting those who do not have a voice for those who always have. And unfortunately, way too many of our people, our kids... Our education future is left penciled in. There are a number of moments that stick out to me 
when I was a superintendent. Mostly, I like to bring to the forefront the moments of joy. The moments where I got to see some of our kids who were in classrooms realize that they could be anything. Those moments when I would walk into rooms and see teachers in front of classrooms with such joy and excitement for their young people just warm my heart. Or the times when we were able to see our basketball team make it all the way to the state final four. Or the moments in which you would meet parents who would just want to shake your hand, teary-eyed, and say thank you. Just simply thank you. Unfortunately, the moment that still sits heavy on my heart is the moment I walked into a packed, I mean packed cafeteria. Many faces I had never seen before. A lot of faces that were there thinking that something was going to happen that just was never planned to happen. TV cameras in the back, a lot of angry faces staring at me as I walked towards the front of the room to begin the presentation where I was honestly just seeking feedback on how we could move forward. Come to find out a lot of the faces there, and a lot of buzz around the room, was the anticipation of something that they thought I was, something that they thought I would do. The eyes that were looking at me could have daggers in them as I stood there, attempting to seek clarity on the needs of the community. As I looked out in the community, knowing that more than 80% of my student population is black and Latinx, the audience was 90% white. So I knew this room was not there to seek better options for kids, but to seek my head on a platter. All I could live in my mind and my heart where the moments that I unfortunately saw way too often when we talk about Black History Month and see the horrible things that happened to black people as they would just try to walk by, sit at a counter, or just seek justice. For me, I feel so humbled and lucky to know there are people before me that stood in the way of injustice for me to have this place to stand here, but it felt so uncomfortable standing in front of a room that clearly hated everything about what I presented, especially my black skin. What bothered me the most was that as they looked at me, no matter what the words were coming out of my mouth, all I could see is this rage, this feeling of like Charlottesville all over again, People marching and yelling and demanding that their presence, their whiteness, would be centered. At the end of this meeting, as I was closing out the conversation around the feedback that was received, the conversation that was had, there was one individual that came up to me no more than six to eight inches from my face. From the left and the right side of me, security moved in closer because they were not sure exactly what her intent was. As she moved in, cameras moved closer. And she would scream, scream at the top of her lungs, demanding my resignation. And as she stood there to speak, I could feel the phlegm from her mouth hit the left side of my face and slowly drool down my cheek. 
In that moment, I knew I could not show reaction. I knew that I had to stay within myself even though the embarrassment, the fear, the shame, the hurt, the surprise had to be all over my face. I calmly as possible walked away from the interaction as I was then followed out of the building by security to make sure that I could get to my car. Cameras tried to snap a picture me and get a quote as I solemnly left the building so confused about a community in which only 1% of its graduates were graduating college and career ready could be so upset at the opportunity for improvement I now realize that wasn't the community politics of the situation that I stood in was not of my doing nor of my fixing but a systemic problem that we have in this country that has played out over and over again as we see more and more leaders across this country encounter these same challenges that I speak to You can look in the newspapers this week and see another great superintendent in Colorado who had very similar circumstances, was making changes in progress, and was demanded in different ways than mine, but in a very similar story, pretty much told to leave. His situation a little bit different than mine, the way that it was voted was a 3-3 tie after a proficient evaluation fantastic year he had. A 3-3 tie that was split down the middle, black and white. If this isn't a reflection of a broken system, I don't know what is. But at the same time, my moments of surprise and my moments of hurt have started to wane because I now realize There's a systemic issue and challenge that we need to fix and find a way to find a solution for kids so that the adult politics that are often rooted in things much deeper than just textbooks and pencils is solved for with some other systemic equation. If nothing else, we're learning more and more about everything from the courthouse to the White House that representation matters. However we look at representation in the seats of those that occupy them, we see the creation of direction, governance, and ultimately the support of a continuation of a nation system where representation is lacking. Whether it is in the boardroom, the courtroom, schoolhouses or white houses we have a lot of work to do this live reality came full circle for me when i was reading an article from the philadelphia tribune where the headline read 
the Fortune 500 now have two black women CEOs. That's actually an improvement. When that is the headline, it makes me question, improvement? However, I should put question at the end of this statement. Because if we look at the systems that govern us, from healthcare to CEOs, to those in the rank and file of law enforcement, we can see that this underrepresentation is not only within business, but in every other system that has inequities built into it intentionally. A New York Times article found interesting data about blue lives and the lives they intend to protect and serve. In this 2020 New York Times article of 467 local police departments with at least 100 officers that reported data from both 2007 and 2016, more than two-thirds of those police departments became whiter relative to their communities between those years. And to extend this very notion, Pew Research did some analysis of both Democrats and Republicans. And they have a vastly different view of how black people are treated by police and the wider justice system. Overwhelming majorities of Democrats say black people are treated less fairly than whites by police, 88%, and the criminal justice system, 86%, according to the 2019 poll. About 4 in 10 Republicans agree. 43 39% respectively. The reason this is significant because the number of Republicans that are people of color are far and few between. In the 117th U.S. Congress, the Congress that sits in office today, there's a total of 535 voting members, 435 in the House and 100 in the Senate. Out of the 535 voting members, there are a total of 19 people of color in the United States House of Representatives and only three senators who identify as people of color. Only one of those senators being black. So maybe the two black CEOs in the Fortune 500 company is an improvement. Nah, still a question mark. So when it comes to schools, as our nation now educates students that are a majority children of color, you would hope that those that make the laws that represent their well-being represent them. In 2018, a survey by the National School Boards Association led by K-12 Insight shed a ton of light on a trend that has and will continue to have impact on our education system. Most board members in the 2018 survey identified as white, 78%, followed by African-American, 10%, and Hispanic or Latinx, 3%, American Indian, Alaskan Native, 1%. Board members who self-described as multiracial comprised of 1% of the survey respondents with an additional 7% who preferred not to answer. While black board members saw gains from 2002, where they held 7.8% of the board seats, to 2010, when that number increased to 12.3, there was a decline in 2018 back to 10%. Among survey respondents, 45% reported less than 25% of their district students represented ethnic minorities. 
22% indicated that the minority population was between 26 and 50%. And 18% indicated that 51 to 75% were minorities. While 12% of those board members also indicated that their district student population was 76 to 100% minority. So why is this important? So over 55% those board members that reported on the survey were reporting, serving, making policy for districts that were largely children of color. To add to this very interesting notion of race, it's not lost on me is also the age of those board members where the median age of board members was 59. 59, when we think about kids that range from pre-K, three and four year olds to 18, 19 year olds. And thinking about those that are supporting, directing our districts, the relational ability to see what is needed for kids is a very large age gap. So why am I making such a big deal out of representation? Here's why. As I look at the leaders across this country who are leading our children, systems where more and more kids of color are attending, we're seeing a lot of leaders leaving those positions and a lot of the things that are happening to them because of them leaving those positions are often not because of their inability to lead. What we're finding over and over again is the fact that the educational politics that surrounds school systems makes it very difficult for leaders to lead for outcomes of kids instead of the politics that surround those outcomes. So what we have are leaders that are trying to do one thing and politics that are driving them to do another. Now, at this point, I have not spoken to any of these leaders, but I will go out on a limb to say that there are a large number of leaders of color who are leaving education for reasons that have nothing to do with academic achievement and underperformance. And way that is disguised is often that these leaders are ousted for reasons that the public will see and create a narrative that makes them seem as if they are the villain. When in reality, the narrative is very different internally. I wasn't too sure or understanding of this until 
became part of systems where I had firsthand opportunities to see and understand how the interaction between superintendents and boards work. And there are a number of times where I see the disagreements between educators and those that govern them are usually not based on academic achievement, but on personal preference and perspective. As we currently look at some of the nation's largest school district leaders being pushed out of their roles where black and brown children need them the most, you have to start to question what's really going on. If you look at just the past few months, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and Broward County, four of the largest districts in this country have seen their leader depart from their post or offer their resignation in the last few months. But why? Why is this happening? Yes, we could point to the pandemic and yes, the toll, trauma and catastrophic deaths that has weighed heavily on teachers and leaders is real. That is clear. The strain that it has put on individuals mentally cannot be lost on us. That is what we have experienced this past year. However, I want to go out on a limb and say there's something much deeper, systemic and generationally dangerous that is happening will continue to happen unless we start to face the injustice and inequities that happen within the educational politics that we see today. I want to relate education leadership right now to beauty contest. Right now, educational leaders are being judged in some of the most male-dominated, misogynistic ways you can imagine. Given the white, heteronormative society we are judged in, you know how this contest plays out. Whoever wears the just right outfit to make the judges look good, or who is going to make sure they don't do too much to stay on the stage, but not too much to create controversy to remove them from the spotlight. Even if that means really dressing down to the reality so it's palatable to the judges, that's what leaders are tending to do so that they can make sure they can stay at their seat, and that the judges that are sitting in their seat can avoid making a tough decision and stand for what is white and what is right. The politics of our time, of our beauty contest, is the pigment of our pain. History has shown us that the only way that we can take you down is by making you the villain in the story. When we look at education leaders across this country, I would love for folks to count how many times they see articles that have headlines that say that a superintendent or leader was fired, dismissed, or resigned because of underperformance academically for kids. I'll wait. However, the headlines that you overwhelmingly see have something to do that is a lot more nefarious, a lot more criminal in the eyes and minds of those that read those articles and created intentionally to show folks that those leaders were not right for something very different than what they were hired for. However, I will go out on that limb and say that those articles and headlines in so many of those cases are so far incomplete, untrue, and damaging. History has shown us 
that if we're going to take down those that are empowered, those that are having impact, those that are creating ripples or waves for change, there has to be a way to take them down. If you look at the history of our country and look at people of color who have attempted to make change through music, leadership, or otherwise, you will see the things that are being done to them to take them away from their places of power. If you look at the history of Billie Holiday and her song, Strange Fruit, you will not only hear lyrics, but you will hear a haunting of a reality that white America did not want to talk about and did everything to take her out and ensure that she did not live. At age 44, she became the strange fruit in which she sang about. Then you look at the history of MLK, Fred Hampton, Kwame Torre, Huey Newton. The list goes on and on of leaders who have attempted to create change in this country and were taken down for their power and position and their pigment because of what they were doing to disrupt the status quo and change outcomes for all of America to see our humanity. The political narrative that has swirled one purpose, one mission, to maintain the status quo because the fear of something new resembles loss, power removed, superiority, all of which is kept at bay as long as we don't go too far with our righteousness. Injustice is not the enemy of progress. Complacency with that injustice is. The imagination of our country was lost with Hamilton's death. We've allowed fear to create a fortress around hope and possibility and a moat that only allows still water to wash away thoughts of progress as we continue to build walls rather than bridges that would show us our humanity, show us that we can be connected rather than sequestered by racism and hate. The bravery our country needs is bigger than the politics. People choose to be politically rich over being morally bankrupt every damn day. In my opinion, the fear of being seen as imperfect or inferior is what maintains the white male patriarchal police state that we live in today. However, the burden of perfection is heavy and emperors have been seen without clothes. January 6th has been the biggest example in my eyes where the burden of perfection of always getting your way was exposed. You can see the fear loss and hate boil over on our nation's capital because something didn't go the majority's way. And to watch the flailing bodies exhaust so much energy for their claim to what was theirs, not the election, but their perfection, only opened my eyes to the depths of the racial divide in the United States of America. The moment I saw the attempts to use brute force to shake down the wardrobe of democracy showed me the nakedness of America's nepotism. It exposed an inability for us to find ways to be innovative, inspired, and to think differently when the very fabric of our country's cloth was finally shown to be made of fool's gold. So instead, 
This country builds up a political wall made with hollow bricks to barricade its insecurities from ideologies that may open up a wider tent for more people to realize their potential. Instead, we are in favor of an educational political arena that is fortified by the fabric of the status quo. So what do we do about that? First, I believe the conversation rarely starts in education on common ground anymore. We have become so comfortable with cancel culture that we are rarely choosing to look across the aisle, let alone stepping into it. We must move from the scarcity mindset to one of abundance. Too often we see companies worried about the bottom line versus the racial one. This overcompensation for compensation is costly. It limits the possibilities we see because we can see the power in our humanity and what we all can produce. But in turn, what is happening in education is that we're reducing the calculation of what is important to what is black and white. The very idea and positions that pit each other against one another are deepened by a desire to grab for more at the buffet table rather than eating less. And the moments that the mashed potatoes are gone, we scramble for that last scoop instead of planting some more seeds so we can have more. Because time is seemingly not on our side. Our insatiable taste for more is salted by capitalism and tempered by white dominant culture perspectives. Whether it is the white clergy that told Dr. King that his protests were untimely or the governance systems that tell leaders of color, you are out of time. It's the same inhumane view of what we are that sacrifices what we could be. So what is it that we need more than ever right now in this moment? Courage. Courage to realize that we can change the language and the approach to action if we want to. Way too often, we allow tough decisions to get in the way of progress. But if we just change the word tough out and put the word right in so that we're making the right decisions for the moment, we will see drastically different outcomes or at least a mindset to say that we can. So for leaders, when you see the moment in which you have a tough decision to make, replace tough with right and make the right decision for you and your community. And for those that are looking in the mirror, thank you. And keep encouraging others to do the same. But don't stop there. Find ways to take your awareness to action. Let's stop building five-year educational strategic plans when we live in a world that shifts every five Snapchats. Let's become responsive instead of reactive. Every protagonist in a story has a guide that illuminates that path forward. Every student has a great teacher. Every player has a great coach. And every failure has a lesson to be learned. There are people right in front of you, ready and willing to accept the long overdue vulnerability of the majority, to succumb to our collective humanity so we can chart a better path forward, made by change and rooted in what if, instead of what now. The silence of our inability to do and act in education is deafening. Denouncing hate doesn't make you less white, it makes you more human. The inability to take a stand means you will fall for everything. Could you imagine if a quarterback would just stand at the midfield line the whole game and say that they want to win? 
Or if a doctor would avoid surgery because of the fear of the patient's pain? Or an architect saying that they didn't want to build the Eiffel Tower because he didn't want folks to be afraid of heights? And all of those situations, we know that would not happen because in each of those situations, those individuals took a stand. They went to win. They went to cure. They went to build. They wanted to find direction. They wanted to create a better space. They saw the importance of change and they made it happen. To all my white educator allies and allies in general, I see you and I love you. You are a big piece of this puzzle that seems to have so many incongruent arrangements. However, the ability to speak your truth and withstanding the pressure of negativity never seems to create positive results for kids because you have the access to the decisions we need you to create for others. The most meaningful thing you can do for yourself is something that means so much for someone else. If there was ever a time in our country's history, as we look at the evolution and opportunity to change the way education is provided to all of our kids across this country, this is the moment where we're looking for allies who are saying, what can I do? What actions can I take? What movements can I be a part of? Better yet, what voices can I lift? It is time to figure out answers to those questions now. It's time to step into positions within your districts, within your communities, and understand the complexity of what you're walking into so that you can, one, make sure that you're centering the voices of the community over your own. Creating spaces to ensure that those that are mostly impacted by the decisions that are made in the district have the voice and direction and vision to make it happen. We also must realize that we live in a space and time when we are getting unprecedented one-time funding into our school buildings through the CARES Act and other forms to ensure that we have a strong reopening of school in a few months. We have to make sure that those that are in need of that money the most are getting it. We have to ensure that the folks that see a pathway forward for our kids are putting money where it needs to go to ensure that the well-being of our kids is better than ever. If we're going to grow, we need to plant seeds differently. We need to water our flowers in ways that we may not have seen necessary before because they will grow if they are given what they need to be successful. What they need more than anything is a voice. Someone who is going to ensure that the well-being of what they need and want is put on the forefront of those responsive strategic plans, not those five-year vision ones. It's going to be a part of the direction that governance, superintendents, school leaders and teachers and families see for our kids across this country in a concerted effort rather than a divided one. That may mean there are going to be times when we may not always get what we want, but the people around us will get what they need. My hope is that the politics of the day, the politics that sit in education, can find a way to see 
the importance of the young people, their hearts, their minds, their possibility. It's more important than any political seat we can sit in. Because one day that chair will be empty and there will be someone else in that seat. So let's find a way to make sure when we have a chance to make a difference, we come through and make it happen. I don't know who needs to hear this this week, but use more mirrors than microscopes. I don't know why I have seen more people scrutinize for their imperfections than folks realizing the beauty of what it means to live with those imperfections. I had a chance to watch my kids play outside today and saw how critical my oldest son was of his younger brother. And it was the little things he kept pushing at and jabbing at and just bothered me because as you see the little man trying to do something different, there's something beautiful about seeing him try harder and feel success. And I think at times we tend to look at other people through that microscope and then forget to look at ourselves with the same level of compassion and intent to get better because we live in a world where it's easier to point a finger outward than it is to point it inward. And I implore us to change that dynamic in a, in a time where we need more of us to be empathetic to others, but more importantly, to realize that we too have work to do on ourselves before we can expect others to get better. So if you just need a minute to think about what that is for you, or that area where you keep pointing the finger outward versus pointing it inward, maybe pick up that mirror, put down that microscope, and realize that the image that you see is the first one you need to change. family that is today's show thank you so very much for being a part of penciled in once again i'm your host david hardy jr you can follow me on twitter at d hardy jr or on ig at made by one change or check us out on our website at madebychange.org. and i'm so excited to just announce to you all that we've had over 500 listeners to our show and just excited to see the growing energy that is coming out of this conversation so if you haven't already please subscribe like, drop a review, and tell a friend to join us next week, y'all. And to speak of next week, we're actually going to be moving our show to thinking a little bit more about the humanity that we want to see. And to do so, we got to bring in some humans, y'all. So we're going to have some people coming in, being a part of the conversation as I have conducted and will continue to conduct interviews with folks who will be a part of upcoming shows. So next week, you will get a little bit of a teaser and you will see in two weeks, Voices and people who can create the change that we all want to see to ensure that our humanity is brought to the forefront rather than the background. So please join us next week and every week after so that we can continue our conversation to ensure that we are more than just penciled in. <laughs>